It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Kennedy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, May 5th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. If the leaked draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade ends up being the final ruling, it may change the debate ahead of midterms, but the question is, will it change Democrats' chances in the fall? I think our news cycle is actually so quick now that we're a long way still from November, but I do think it gives people some pretty clear choices, right? I'm Dave Anthony. Russia is ramping up its offensive in Ukraine after leader Vladimir Putin narrowed his focus following heavy Russian casualties. This is why he's rattling his nuclear saber. His his army is inept and on the verge of, of defeat in Ukraine. And I'm Robert Jeffress. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The leaked Supreme Court draft opinion that would potentially overturn Roe v. Wade is already being used for fundraising efforts. Democrats who were the most outraged after the leak, like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, sent out emails. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee did as well. Some progressives called them out. Nina Turner, Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign co-chair in 2020, who lost her Ohio House primary race Tuesday, tweeted, Protecting abortion rights is not a midterm pitch. Instead of drafting fundraising emails tonight, our elected leaders should be in D.C. voting to codify Roe and getting rid of the filibuster. But how much could such a ruling impact the vote? Ahead of this leak, we spoke to Sabato Crystal Ball managing editor Kyle Kondik, who said the landscape for Democrats is bleak, but... I don't know if it's, you know, if the, the future is completely written in stone and there, there are twists and turns to go. I think that the issue of abor- abortion could potentially be important, um, given what the Supreme Court might yeah. say about the, about abortion. But, you know, I think that, that the Democrats are sort of running out of time in some ways. The question is, would such an opinion, if it turns out to be fine, buy them time, or even flip the script. Real Clear Politics president Tom Bevan told Fox News Radio during our Tuesday primary night coverage. The things that please the base of the party invariably alienate swing voters and moderates, um, and vice versa. If they tried to please moderates, it would alienate the base. This is one issue where the Democrats think actually they can win both, that it'll, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll unite both of these pieces of the electorate. But he says if the economy is still where it is, it's hard to see the issue of abortion taking over that. Obviously, it's a huge moment, if true, in our country's history, given how long abortion has been legal in the country. Alyssa Slotkin is a Michigan Democratic congresswoman. And of course, I live in a state that has some of these snapback laws Uh, You know, a 1931 law on the books in Michigan, which would give no exceptions for children, for rape victims, incest, and would make it a felony for someone to perform an abortion. So it would have a complete immediate effect in the state of Michigan. And um, I think we should have a vote on it in Congress. I mean, we did in the House. I think the Senate should be on record on this. And, you know, I, I believe in personal freedom and I believe in having the right to make choices. And, you know, I know it's a very sensitive issue for people, but I'm I'm not going to mealy mouth it. I support a woman's right to choose. And it's very hard to see that leaked decision if true. What do you think the political implications are for Democrats if Roe is overturned? I imagine even if it's 
distasteful to say that Democrats will get some mileage out of this. It will absolutely be used in fundraising if it isn't already. Does this change the midterm mood? Well, I don't know. You know, I think our news cycle is actually so quick now that we're a long way still from November. But I do think it gives people some pretty clear choices, right? In many races, including my own, there's a real difference between myself and my opponent on the issue of choice. Um, but I don't know. I think it's too early to tell. We haven't seen the official decision. And we're just still a long ways from November. Before you were in Congress, you worked at the CIA as an intelligence analyst, in case our listeners did not know that. Um, given your background, how concerned are you that this draft ruling was leaked? That's unprecedented. And if it was released because of an agenda, is that even more troubling? Well, look, I mean, I worked in classified spaces where you literally could be charged with a crime if you released that information. So. I grew up in an environment where that idea of keeping an internal process sacred was paramount. Um, and I don't think it's good for the future of the court that people are leaking things. Um, obviously, it was leaked to alert people to a really massive change. And I don't condone it. And I obviously think that this investigation that Chief Justice Roberts is pursuing is a really big deal in the history of the court. But they have to be able to have an internal conversation. As concerned as I am about the decision itself, I also don't think you should just get to violate kind of norms and standards and rules in an institution like the Supreme Court. Well, in keeping with your vast knowledge of classified information and information gathering and processing, I want to shift. What, what do you think of Homeland Security's decision to ramp up this disinformation governance board? I, I know some people are jokingly calling it the Ministry of Truth. Um, what's your, I guess, initial take on this? Well, you know, I, I sort of learned of it at the same time that I think the world learned of it as it kind of <laughs> came into media, which um, I don't love. And I understand why it's being um, sort of teased and, and mocked because it comes right out of kind of, uh, you know, satire, I guess. And I, I just need to learn more about it. I don't know what the plan is, what the goals are. And certainly we know that there is a problem with purposeful misinformation and disinformation. I mean, when when Russia invaded Ukraine, private cable companies decided that they were no longer going to carry RT, Russia Today, on right. their cable packages, right? That was a unilateral decision by um, private sector company, um, which I agree with. It was straight up Russian propaganda, but it wasn't the U.S. government curbing them. It's private sector. So I think that's this is the space that we're trying to figure out and navigate right now. No one likes purposeful misinformation and disinformation, especially if it's from a foreign actor. But what role do we have in the U.S. government in curbing that? I just don't think we're settled as a country on that because we have freedom of speech. And that's right. such an important tenet. So there's just not a clear answer for me. But I, I know that uh, an office like that, I understand how it raises hackles kind of on both sides of the aisle. Let's talk about the economy, because, again, we look at midterms and the mood and the landscape. Every political analyst and their mother says it's not good for Democrats. But the Fed announced Wednesday it's raising interest rates by the most it has in 20 years, half a point. Um, I'm not an economist. I know you're not. But there is some worry among some that this could actually make things worse. I know the Fed historically tries to keep inflation in check, right? And one of the ways they do that is with interest rates. Is this the kind of environment, though, with supply chain issues and war in which interest rate rises aren't really addressing the reason 
that we have the inflation we have? Look, like you said, I am not an economist and I want a bigger economic brains than mine looking <laughs> at this issue, trying to decide what to do in an area of macroeconomics, right? Um, there is compounding factors that are affecting inflation right now. And the Fed has been previewing for a long time that they were going to raise interest rates, right? And I think that is something that helps contribute to bringing down that very hot inflation rate right now. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing that we should be doing, right? I think that there's a quite a robust conversation going on right now about what more we can do on gas prices, especially watching the Europeans potentially make the decision to also cut off Russian energy. You know, I'm concerned that prices are going to go up. So what more can we do on the strategic national reserve? How do we browbeat, frankly, the Middle Eastern nations into opening the taps more? What do we do with American companies that might be taking advantage and price gouging at this moment? So the Fed is one piece of it, but it just can't be the only piece. Uh, you just referenced um gas prices in, in Europe, and that is, of course, because of Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, you recently led the way on a bill to help Ukraine get more weapons and to get them more quickly, uh, the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act. I know we've sent drones and even howitzers. We also know that President Biden had said he did not want to send weapons that Russia could look at as offensive. We were sending more defensive weapons, but I'm not a military expert, but I think howitzer is pretty offensive. When did we change positions on what to send and why? And what sort of weaponry would your bill allow for? Well, I'd have to go back and check the exact date. But my sense is the administration was talking about defensive weapons only before Russia full on invaded Ukraine. Right. I think that we're going to have to and historians are going to have to look back and understand, you know, we were trying to keep Russia out of Ukraine and that did not work right? Being careful around the Russians didn't work, right? By sending only defensive weapons instead of something uh, more offensive, it didn't stop them from invading. And so we're going to have to really go back to first principles on how to deter Russia and make this painful for them. So I think somewhere in the actual invasion process, the administration broke the seal and we started sending a lot of offensive weapons. There's no way to call these things defensive. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. I was thrilled. And what we did with this Lend-Lease bill, it's wonky, but it's actually something we did in World War II, which was just streamline the process of taking American stocks, American weapons, and getting them in the hands of either the Ukrainians and or our NATO allies. Does Lend-Lease mean we get them back? I mean, we're not, you know what I mean? Like what, what we can. Mm -hmm. It's optional. Sometimes these uh, countries might use the weapon system so um, intensely for so long that it's not worth getting it back, not worth the transport costs yeah. of getting it back. But it does allow us to basically do like a long-term lending process to Ukraine and our allies. It allows them to kind of quote unquote, pay us back over a longer period of time than the normal federal loan allows. So it just is a longer term option for getting them what they need. One more, you've been willing to push back against your own party and President Biden, you wrote a letter recently, I believe, urging him to not lift Title 42. That health policy has resulted in many migrants being turned away at the border. And many, I guess, in the, you know, the punditry class, they say, you know, members of Congress in vulnerable districts are the ones speaking up against the president on this. Uh, you are in a vulnerable district, according to those pundits and analysts. Is this a political position for you? For me, it's not. I mean, I'm a former CIA officer and Pentagon official who spent my entire professional life protecting the homeland from threats. 
So when I look at what's gone on in the border for a long time now, the southern border, sorry, because I'm a northern border state. <laughs> right. Um, but the southern border is a mess and it's been a mess for a long time. And for me, it's not a political position. It's a national security issue. And it's a national security issue because I want to know who is coming in my country. We always have the right to know who's coming across our borders and how to find them again and how to make sure they're obeying our laws, paying taxes, doing what they should do as decent people. But also because I want immigration to be key to our economy so that we do well, right? Like we thrive when we have a good immigration policy. But Title 42 is not a permanent solution. It's a health order, right? At some point it's gonna be lifted. 100%. And that's that's the thing. Like, I don't really think it's about to me. It's not about Title 42. Immigration policy is broken. It's broken now. It was broken under Trump. It was broken before that. It has been broken for a long time. And yes, Title 42 is what we're talking about because it's a public health order that's been in effect and has given us the ability to deal with some of the people trying to come over the border. But that's not the answer. Right. The answer is not keeping it or not keeping it. The answer is Congress on both sides of the aisle, like getting off their duff and doing something about comprehensive immigration reform. And my big thing is let people apply from their home country for vetted work, legal work. And my farmers would jump for joy if they could have more legal vetted migrants come and work on their farms. But I want them to have an incentive not to walk across our border or sneak across our border. I want the incentive to be that if you apply from your home country, you get in faster. You get an option to legally work and be vetted faster. Mm. So until we deal with that problem, people who are desperate are gonna sell everything they have, give it all their money to a bad criminal gang and come over our border. Um, And that's not good policy. Um, And Trump didn't have good policy. Neither administration had good policy. And Congress is, is absolutely culpable in that because we make the laws. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Robert Jeffress with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. Russia has been intensifying its attacks this week across Ukraine, including going after rail supply lines, carrying U.S. and other foreign weapons in to help Ukraine fight back. You're allowing the Ukrainians to defend themselves. And quite frankly, they're making fools of the Russian military in many instances. President Biden on Tuesday at a Lockheed Martin facility in Alabama, it makes Javelin anti-tank missiles, which have been effective in Ukraine, as Russia also keeps bombarding Mariupol, President Volodymyr Zelensky tells Fox, Russia wishes to destroy everybody who is uh, still in the Azovstal steel plant. Some civilians and Ukrainian troops are still holed up in that plant. More than 100 evacuated earlier this week. You can't imagine how scary it is when you sit in a shelter in a wet and damp basement, which is bouncing, shaking. When we were able to go outside this week, I saw the sun for the second time in two months. 
Russian leader Vladimir Putin is facing more sanctions with European countries considering a ban on Russian oil by the end of this year. Former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster says that only adds to Russia's misery. Putin went into this with all the wrong assumptions. They turned out to be false. Uh, and, and the Russians, they got their asses kicked. A retired Army Lieutenant General McMaster is also the author of Battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world. No cause for celebration, because what the Russian army can do is they can bomb residential areas and cities indiscriminately yeah. and commit mass murder of innocent people. And they've been doing and, that and, the whole time, it seems. And, and, and But that is not, it is shocking to Americans, but that is the way Russia fights, isn't it? Absolutely. And what's very important now is to help is to rush these capabilities to the Ukrainians that help them prevent uh, the, this indiscriminate killing of, of, of innocent people, you know, with weapons that can that can attack the delivery systems that the Russians have, the you know, the rocket launchers and the artillery pieces. And they can interdict the convoys because, you, know, you know, Dave, it takes it takes a lot of artillery rounds to, to rubble a city. And so we've also seen you know, the importance of short of ship missiles. Yeah. In, uh, in denying Russian freedom of movement along the Black Sea coast. And I know that the U.S. wants to send in more. There's a, a proposal for Congress for $33 billion in more military and, and other aid into Ukraine. How long can the U.S. keep sending all this stuff overseas before we compromise our own readiness? Well, this is an opportunity, Dave, to look at our industrial base and to look at our ability to ramp up manufacturing of weapons very quickly. But what really needs to happen is getting those weapons into the hands of people who need them. So there's a logistics problem associated with that and ensuring that they're trained and they can integrate various weapon systems so they have a capability. Again, prevent bombardment, right? Achieve air supremacy, mainly from the ground with uh, with integrated air defense systems. So. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done here that's just beyond allocating, you know, the, the 33 billion. Uh, but it's I think it's a good sign. And, and again, it's it's time for us to look at supply chains as well, Dave. Right. I mean, now we've seen, hey, what a big mistake it was for Europe in retrospect to give Russia coercive power over Europe's economy uh, by over reliance on, on their hydrocar- Russia's hydrocarbon exports. Yeah. And, and well, that's changing. Chinese. Look at the Chinese economy. <laughs> Look at how reliant we are yeah, on so true. many supply chains on China. That's a big mistake. You know, we're going to give China coercive power over our economy like Middle Eastern countries had over our economy in the 1970s with oil. So we, we have a lot of work to do in defense. The three big long range strategic shifts we have to make, Dave, are defense. And we need to reinvest in our defense. As you mentioned, we're depleting our stocks. We need to build them back up. But, you know, I'll tell you, we, we, we need a larger armed force, Dave. I mean, you know, we, we assumed that we could deal with one crisis at a time and it would mainly be China to deter. Hey, we, you know, we've got not only the situation with, with Russian aggression, China and, and, and Putin. Remember, they profess their enduring love for each other. Right? Yeah, our, right. our partnership has no limits before the Olympics. Yeah. And, and you know, they said, hey, get ready for a new era of international relations. Hey, the United States, you're over. Get used to it. We're in charge now. And then you have uh, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea uh, toward ta- Taiwan. Now, North Korea. Uh, has been testing long-range missiles and is about to do a nuclear test. Uh, And you have Iran, who's intensified its four-decade-long proxy war against the United States, its Arab neighbors, and and Israel, while it rushes uh, to get a threshold nuclear capability. I mean, there are a lot of problems in the world. And you know what? They don't get better if we portray weakness, right? Reagan had it right when he talked about peace through strength. You know, 
you mentioned North Korea and Iran, and I want to get to those topics because they're important too. But Russia continually talks about how this could become a nuclear conflict with Ukraine. Now, is that something that you think is just talk, or is that a real threat? Well, you have to take it seriously because the Russians have been using for a long time this this uh, or talking about for a long time the strategy of of escalation domination or escalate to de-escalate. You would normally hear them talk about it in connection with the Baltic states. Like if they were going to take the Baltic states uh, and they were stymied in that effort, they would use a nuclear weapon maybe in Poland or something, and then say, "Okay, option A for you is Armageddon. Option B is sue for peace on our terms." So that's what they mean by escalate to de-escalate. Okay. okay. Uh, but I, I, I but I'm telling you, Dave. He's got to know it's a suicide weapon. We could respond conventionally in a way uh, to, to really Im- impose huge costs on on Vladimir Putin if he uses a so you know, so-called t- tactical nuclear weapon. No, we, I mean we could we could sink the entire Black Sea fleet in like forty minutes. You know who ought to fear escalation? Vladimir Putin. This is why he's rattling his nuclear saber. His his army is inept and on the verge of of defeat. In Ukraine, you know, he he doesn't have the economic strength. Remember, even before the sanctions, Russia's economy was the size of Italy's economy, right? Or Texas's economy, uh, and, and and so you know, he, what does he have left? He has cyber. Well, maybe he doesn't because I don't know what we did, Dave, you know, because I'm not reading classified stuff anymore. But we did something. We be in the free world and, and maybe the Ukrainians as well, I think, to preempt uh, Russian cyber capabilities. And he must know that we have we have tremendous cyber capabilities if he was to, yeah. to, to conduct an attack against us. We were all um, waiting for that cyber retaliation when we imposed well, sanctions back in February and March. We were all waiting for something. Right. It's the dog that didn't bark. Right. You know, and so so what, is, what does he have left, really? Back to North Korea. This week, it launched yet another ballistic missile, its 14th test this year. And there are concerns a nuclear test may be coming, which hasn't happened in five years. The U.S. condemned the launch with the State Department calling on North Korea to stop and restart talks. Though last week at a military parade complete with a display of missiles, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un vowed to speed up nuclear weapons development four years after his summit with then-President Trump. Now, H.R. McMaster left the administration a few months before that failed attempt to get North Korea to denuclearize. And actually, we got off to a good start uh, while I was national security advisor is to put into place a campaign of maximum pressure. And the thesis we were testing, Dave, was that that we could convince Kim Jong-un that he's safer without the weapons than he is with them. We have never really ramped up sanctions the way that we could to show him that he is vulnerable to economic isolation. Now, of course, 90, maybe 96 percent of his trade is with China across the border with China. But, you know, if China doesn't adhere to U.N. Security Council resolutions that Ambassador Nikki Haley did a phenomenal job getting in place and getting through the Security Council, unprecedented uh, U.N. sanctions. Uh, then you have options to sanction uh, secondary sanctions against Chinese banks, you know, for example. We could have done more on maritime interdiction to cut off you know, some of the coal exports as well as the fuel imports and the, and the, the shortest ship transfer. And, you know, some people accuse me of being nutty, Dave, when I talk about this. But, you know, I would just say we need a viable military option. Not that we want to use it, but how do you get to a diplomatic solution if you don't have a viable military option for a preventive or, or a preemptive strike against the North. Okay. You know, what happens one day, Dave, if they start rolling out all these, you know, all these mobile launchers and we don't know if it's an exercise or not, we're going to have to have that military capability in place. So, 
know, I, I would say a return to maximum pressure is what we ought to do. What Kim Jong Un is trying to do is he's trying to get us to repeat the failed cycle of previous efforts to get them to denuclearize, right? Okay. Pro- provoke, get us to make concessions, extort payoffs, and get involved in long, drawn-out, bottom-up negotiations that deliver a weak agreement uh, that, that he benefits from economically, and then he just violates that agreement. And that, by the way, that agreement locks in the status quo as a new normal, which is already a dangerous one to begin with. So let's not do that, Dave. Now let's go to Iran. You were not the national security advisor anymore when then president trump pulled the us out of the international nuclear deal did you like that move when it happened and do you think the biden administration is 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 doing the right or the wrong thing trying to get back in i i was you know critical of the deal but what i what i wanted to do is create an option for the president to stay in in the near term sanction their behavior outside of the deal continue to choke off choke them off economically, but to do it with the EU and others and keep the conversation about Iran's destructive, murderous behavior in the region. Well, my successor came in and I think he gave the president advice just to pull out right away. That had certain advantages, Dave, because, you know, the the sanctions snapped back in. They had a a devastating effect on Iran's ability to to intensify its proxy war regionally. And so there, there were positive aspects to either staying in or getting out. I wanted I would have I would have wanted the president to have more time because once you get out, you're out. Yeah. You and, know, since, and, 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 and the president can get out any time he wanted. And right? since and, and he, since they pulled out now, Iran has violated terms of that deal. The deal's still in effect in place with the international uh, other countries. But Iran's been violating it. They've been enriching uranium at a higher level. Are they getting closer to actually having a weapon? Do they th- do they really want a weapon, do you think? They really want a weapon, and they never stop pursuing one. One of the one of the problems with the Iran nuclear deal as well, though the, the old one was, it had a really poor inspection and verification regime. Right? They said, oh, "You can't inspect any of our military facilities." I mean, really? Come on. So, you know, I mean, do you really trust the Iranians? It's ridiculous. And now, what's really crazy, Dave, is that is that the the Biden administration, the same people basically, who negotiated this deal under the Obama administration are supplicating to the Iranians. I mean, we're not even we're, we're, we're actually humiliating ourselves because the Iranians aren't allowing us to talk to them directly. You know who our interlocutor is? The Russians. And now we're making concession after concession. And the Russians are, are now going to be the guarantor maybe of this deal. It's a disaster. It's also one of the reasons why we have such a, a terrible relationship with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. I think, Dave, these competitions are interconnected and in bad policy in one area limits your ability to respond to crises in others, such as uh, as confronting Russian aggression in Ukraine. The book is Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Lieutenant General retired from the Army. H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Robert Jeffress. What's on your mind? Our world is in a crisis. You can feel it. The future looks grim, more expensive, more divided, more uncertain, and more dangerous than at any time in living memory. Things seem to be spinning out of control. 
What can we do in the face of such a crisis? Looking back, what has tended to bring about the most change in history? You might think it was scientific discoveries from people like Copernicus or Newton, or perhaps it was inventions like Gutenberg's printing press or Edison's light bulb. In our lifetimes, you might point to the personal computer or the internet or the smartphone. Would you be surprised if I told you none of those discoveries or inventions has had the greatest impact on the course of history, the most earth-shattering revolutionary act ever undertaken in history is when you pray. When you pray, you get to speak to the creator of the universe. You don't have to know any incantations or code words. You can talk to him about anything. In the simple act of speaking to God, you can ask God to bring the hope and renewal our world yearns for, but can never produce for itself. As theologian Karl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. What could be more revolutionary than that? God has worked through prayer in our nation before. It can start with just one person's faithfulness. I'm reminded of the story of Jeremiah Lampier, a clothing merchant in New York City. In 1857, he started a prayer meeting in Manhattan that drew just six businessmen to its first meeting. But Lanfear was undaunted. He kept holding meetings to pray each week. The numbers who gathered kept multiplying. Then, just a few weeks later, the stock market crashed, and New York banks closed for two months. This led to a dramatic increase in the businessmen who wanted to pray. Soon, more than 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily to pray in New York City, and similar movements in other cities began. By 1859, it is estimated that one out of every 12 lost Americans had turned to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know what God may do. But we can ask. Prayer isn't a get-out-of-your-problems-free card. But we do know there are some prayers God will always answer. When we pray, God promises to give us what St. Augustine called the framework of true desires. God will align our hearts with His, teaching us to love what really matters and focus on what is most important. God can teach us to see the world through the lens of His power and hope. That would be quite a revolution, the kind of revolution that each of us needs today. On this National Day of Prayer, this is Robert Jeffress for Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.